Hi everyone out there, welcome to The Goods, a film podcast, and welcome also to the year 2022. You out there, Dan? Oh yeah, I'm here. We made it. We made it through two years of pandemic, just about. And the good news is there's absolutely no end in sight. So, you know, it is what it is, but this week was brightened at least a little bit by your selection. Oh, interesting. Well, that sounds positive. We'll have to find out soon with the listeners whether our selection for this week is good. Because what we have been watching is La La Land, the 2016 film written and directed by Damien Chazelle. Is that how you say it? Chazelle? Because I noticed in our episode last week, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, I said Michael Gondry probably 10 times. And then I, the next day heard it pronounced correctly which is michelle and i'm like oh of course he's french i should i made it sound like a dumb american name and now every cinephile out there is laughing at me so that's my correction to to last week's maybe it's damien chiselle <laughs> something like that i i i've heard chiselle it could be chazelle come on the pod damien and talk to us yourself let us know <laughs> had you heard of this one dan oh absolutely yeah i mean it was involved in the big Oscar controversy where it was the front runner for the best picture and then it got announced as best picture only to reveal that it was a colossal goof up and Moonlight ended up winning best picture. Yeah, really weird moment in Oscar history. Bring everybody up on stage after you've told them they're the winners. Um, actually, no. Go back to your seats. Right. It's kind of like uh, Encanto. Did you watch that one? I, I just watched that one uh, two days ago, actually. Yeah. You know, bring bring her up, say you're going to give her the superpowers, and then, oh, nope, guess not. Yeah, too bad. Go away. But uh, La La Land did win, I think, like six other Oscars, so they didn't go home empty-handed at all. But I, I will say how this one came to my knowledge was in 2017, I had a pass for a local theater that was kind of art house style. And uh, the past would let me go all year long and see unlimited movies. Like, I, I think I supported a Kickstarter to get new seats. And I definitely did that in 2015. I think it was the same deal for a different theater in uh, 2017. Anyhow, this was like the only year that I saw all the Oscar movies or even came close. That's not normally a goal I set for myself. I know that the hosts over at Buzzed On Movies do that from year to year. It's a big undertaking, but because of the focus of this little theater, they had at the start of 2017, right before award season in like February, they had all the Oscar films lined up. So I saw like Lion and, oh man, I, I got to pull up my list, but like there was that one with um Casey, what's his name? Casey... Oh, Casey Affleck? Was that Manchester by the Sea? Casey Affleck, that's right. Manchester by the Sea with Casey Affleck. Thank you, Dan. The one with Casey, that got me there. And, um... Oh, Hell or High Water, did you ever see that one? No. Uh, 
shout out to Hell or High Water because that's one that got a Best Picture nomination that was like very un oscarsy It's just a Western action movie. And it had um, Jeff Bridges chasing down a bank robber. And that was like an exciting one. It, it felt like a movie of Breaking Bad. I, I liked it. Mm. But my point is that with so many nominations, I did see... La La Land. Also saw Moonlight. Also saw all the documentary shorts and animated shorts and all that stuff. Saw one of the international uh, foreign language nominees called, uh, well, the English title was Land of Mine, which was a pun because it's a movie about child soldiers being forced to clear landmines off of a beach. Oh, man, that's brutal. And so you got to kids being blown up by landmines not related to the subject of our film this evening luckily but that was like the only time i've seriously considered leaving a theater <laughs> mid-movie because yikes i was the only one there nobody would have judged me uh yeah not for the squeamish don't check out that one all right i'll keep that in mind or rather i will keep that squarely out of mind <laughs> uh but you know i saw Movies that stuck with me for other reasons, and La La Land was one of them. It's the only one that I went back and saw a second time. Wow. And I got a second job that year in March, and after March I was more busy and didn't get nearly as much use out of my past as I did back in 2015. And I don't think La La Land was the first movie that I saw on this pass, but I may have seen it as the second movie on like January 3rd or something. So it's fitting, at least to me, that it be here our first movie that we are talking about recording in 2022. A little about the creative team behind this one. The music was by Justin Hurwitz, and the lyrics to the songs were by the team of Pasek and Paul. Now, what movie have we watched that they contributed to, Dan? Uh, boy. Did they do Greatest Showman? They did the songs for Greatest Showman. I think they also wrote the music, too, but here uh, they just did the lyrics. Gotcha. Did they do Dear Evan Hansen, too? Yes, which I actually learned from you in our Greatest Showman episode. Gotcha. That rings a bell. And apparently writer and director Damien Chazelle had this concept for La La Land for a long time, but he couldn't generate any interest in an original musical from a studio until he made the movie Whiplash and got good critical reception and commercial reception to that. Yeah, and, and one thing I read is that Damien Chazelle's original casting idea for Seb, the lead male, is Miles Teller, who is the star of whiplash and that might have been movie ruining honestly like i love miles teller but you need somebody adorable in this role and miles teller is about as far from adorable as he come <laughs> i actually have never seen whiplash so i can't judge but that's funny because this movie like whiplash is about a jazz musician and prominently features jk simmons as a nasty boss Although it sounds like he's nastier considerably in Whiplash. I haven't seen Whiplash either. That's one I really want to see. I think it would be up my alley. But yeah, that's the reputation. I think Simmons got an Oscar nom for, for that one. Maybe even a win. I'm trying to remember. 
Yeah, we might have to watch that one because it sounds interesting. It's piqued my interest. And yeah, so just to set the stage, I did see this twice in January 2017. And it really had an impact on me when I saw it. And we'll get into why that was when we do our recap. But then I do every year a short film contest that's put on by alumni from my college, William and Mary. And we have 24 hours to make a film. We get like assigned a genre that we have to use and a line of dialogue and a prop. And so, well, the contest is called 24 Speed because you got 24 hours. And I really had La La Land on the brain this year because it's in, it's in winter. It's like the first week of February. And so I sold the team that year or like strong armed them into making a parody of La La Land because our genre was parody. And I think it's probably our weakest entry because I, I couldn't really communicate to people why I was affected as much as I was by the movie. And I couldn't really like get my vision across. But uh, the end result was a short film called 242424 and... <laughs> And you, you, you need to see it written out because two kind of looks like an L in certain fonts and four kind of looks like an A in certain fonts. And so it's it's La La Land, but with 24s at the start because it's 24 speed. Are you following me, Dan? No, I see, I see it. Yeah, no, I can. I'm a little dubious on the two being an L, but I follow the basic reasoning. Uh, but we did get some original songs for our project, so. I thought that at least was worth merit. Nice. Yeah. So La La Land takes place mostly over the course of a year in Los Angeles. It's broken up into a couple acts that are named based on the season that it is then. I think it's kind of an interesting choice that they put so much focus on the seasons when Los Angeles really doesn't have seasons. Right. So normally if I would see spring, summer, fall, winter... I'm expecting, you know, the the totems for each of those seasons. You got to have jack-o'-lanterns and sweaters for fall, and you got to have snow for winter. And I was trying to figure out if this was like an elaborate joke about how L.A. doesn't have seasons, so everything blurs together. And I think maybe there was at least a little bit of that going on there. But it also just demarcates the passage of time, too. Right, because we kick off in winter, but people are having pool parties and they got Christmas decorations up. So to East Coasters like us, it is very discombobulating. But the very first thing that happens in this movie is we open on a freeway on-ramp that's packed with cars because at least the stereotype is that there's a lot of traffic in L.A. Have you ever been to Los Angeles, Dan? I have once, yes. We did get caught in traffic while we were there, so that fit. Okay. I have some friends who went to USC film school, and I did go to visit them for a week at Christmas, actually, in 2015. I think we took the bus, mostly, so I didn't experience driving there. But here we are on the the crowded road, and we get an opening musical number called Another Day of Sun. What do we see, Dan? What is the experience like of this musical number? Yeah, this this number... I thought the song itself did not suck me in. Um, 
we'll talk about it. There are some numbers here I think are phenomenal and some that are just fine. And this is one that I would put in the just fine category. But what was really cool is the way it's staged. So it's these just a backup of traffic and people start hopping out of cars and singing and doing choreography with the cars and it becomes more elaborate. They like open up a, the back of a truck and there's like a whole band in the back of the truck. And it, it's just some really fun choreography and looks really cool, cool uh, design to kind of introduce us to, to L.A. And I, I'll say one thing that just pops out from frame number one up through the end of the movie is this film's obsession with color. It is such a colorful movie. And I would bet lots of money that Damien Chazelle and I didn't even look up who the cinematographer was, but whoever was working on the visuals of this was very much trying to evoke three strip technicolor where you have blue and yellow and red. So back in the you know 30s, 40s, 50s, I don't even know how long they were using three strip technicolor. They would have these special cameras that would film three strips at once, three film strips at once. And then you would dye them yellow, red, and blue, except you could dye them as strong as you wanted, the yellow, the red, and the blue. So you get super saturated colors, but especially those three colors, you're able to get like super strong, bright colors. Think the red ruby slippers in The Wizard of Oz, you know, that kind of level of brightness. And this movie has all three of those colors prominently displayed. And this opening number does not hide that one bit. Yeah, there's a lot to do with paying homage and drawing from older musicals. I think like at the starting title card, there's even a moment when it says filmed in CinemaScope or something and like the aspect ratio widens out. And yeah, seems to owe stuff to like Singing in the Rain and An American in Paris. One thing I read and I wish that I had had time to catch up with these is that his biggest influence was the French director, and I'm going to just guess on the pronunciation of this, Jacques Demy, D-E-M-Y. And he had a handful of musicals in the 50s that were known for their colors. And I think this is ripping a lot in style from those. So the, his big ones are, I think the two most famous are Umbrellas of Cherbourg, and young girls of Rochefort, or I don't know how you say that word, R-O-C-H-E-F-O-R-T. Um, but I think specifically he's cribbing a lot from that director and his musicals. Oh, interesting. When you say Umbrellas of Cherbourg, that makes sense. And when we get to the end here, we'll talk about why. Yeah, don't spoil Umbrellas of Cherbourg for me because I haven't seen it. Have you, is that one you've caught up? Is that one you've seen? <sighs> So I know Umbrellas of Cherbourg only from the theme song because mm. it's called I Will Wait For You. And it's the song they use in the super sad episode of Futurama where Fry's dog waits for him. But mm, yeah. he has been warped to the future and will never return. Right. But the key thing I think you're not mentioning about this musical number, which is called Another Day of Sun is it is seemingly done all in one take. And so you have these hundreds of cars 
and the camera is moving along as people are jumping out of the cars. There's a skateboarder going down the road, like parkouring off cars. And then, yeah, once you think it can't build anymore, somebody rolls up the door on the back of a truck and there's like a whole like tropical steel drum band in there. I don't even know if I if my brain clicked that this was one take. There were later times that it definitely did, but man, that's really incredible. Yeah, and there's seemingly no cuts. Like it's possible during like a whip pan they hid one, but it really doesn't seem like it. I'm going to need to go watch this again cuz that's awesome. But also, this number is like not representative of what the rest of the movie is for a couple reasons. One, it's very diverse. The very first person that you see looks like she might be an Indian woman or South Asian of some type. And then when they open up this truck, it's like, and again, this is all judging by just a brief glimpse. And so could easily be off base, but they look like they could be Jamaican or something. And then the other thing, it's a huge crowd, like of just a multitudes all singing together here in this ambitious single shot and then the rest of the movie is going to be like very small number of characters more simple scene setups and a bunch of white people right except for john legend who's going to show up yeah and just the the physical quantity of people and staging it's it's kind of unique to this number relative to the rest of the movie you're definitely right about that yeah like just seeing this scene you might think it was going to be something along the lines of oliver or the thank you very much number from scrooge 1970 where you've just every every song maybe will have people dancing down the street in big throngs but that is not the case but this number does do a good job of setting up the premise of the rest of the movie which this is going to be like living in LA as a movie. It's a musical about the Hollywood dream and how people with creative leanings get drawn there like a moth to a flame and then struggle to make that life work for them. Now might be the time for me to bring up that my my hangups with the first half of this movie are my own hangups and not any fault of the movie. But Brian, I'm sure you know what this made me think of. One of my favorite pieces of media. Oh, man. Oh, uh, the one, the caterers, Party Down. Yes, Party Down. The first half of this movie is basically Party Down the musical, but not quite so bracing and sharp, at least from like the story and the commentary on the L.A. experience and trying to become a star. Not quite so bitter, but I was like, oh, yeah, Party Down has this beat. Oh, yeah, Party Down has this beat. And... Yeah, that kind of pulled me out a little bit or, or softened the impact a little bit. That's interesting. I was thinking about that this time around. That's a show that Dan has written and talked about several times. And so then I binged it in like a weekend or two at his recommendation. But yeah, a well done show. I'm definitely less familiar with it than you are. I, I won't bring up all the comparisons that I have, but... The one that really got me is one of the first scenes that we see Emma Stone. She gets a bad spill on her crisp white shirt working in a food place. And that happens in the pilot of Party Down. It's like a major point in the pilot of Party Down. And I was like, okay, yeah. 
Yeah, because our star here is Emma Stone playing a character called Mia. And she, once everybody finally gets back in their cars and stops singing, she's got places to be. And uh, she heads to work on the Warner Brothers lot where she is a barista because what she really wants to do is act. You know, she's an actress by title, but what's making the day-to-day money right now is selling coffee. She briefly passes and honks at, on the road, another driver. We can see it's Ryan Gosling sitting in his car, but we're going to leave him off to the side for a minute here and follow Mia's day. Yeah, and his car is not just any car. It's this fucking gorgeous Buick Riviera that's like far cooler than any car that any person actually owns. But it's part of being stylish. Yeah, Ryan Gosling's character has like two or three things he cares about an inordinate amount and then doesn't care about other things. Right. I also read, I know I'm going off tangents all over the place here. I also read that that car, the Buick Riviera, was known for having an extremely high mortality rate among drivers. It was apparently really dangerous to drive, but that does not end up entering the the plot as a spoiler alert here. (laughs) We're not going to see anybody James Deaning here. Yeah, no, no unexpected decapitations or burning up engines or anything like that and that's why this is not going to get an eight from me (laughs) (laughs) nothing severs ryan gosling's head (laughs) no we we go a different direction here (laughs) can we just i would spend just one minute here talking about the leads prior to diving in oh yeah yeah please so i had very striking first impressions in my life of both of these actors and have never quite been able to shake them. So for Emma Stone, so I, I saw Super Bad in theaters, and it, it remains one of my favorite movies. Hilarious comedy starring Jonah Hill and Michael Sarah on their senior year of high school. And Emma Stone plays the sort of love interest of Jonah Hill. And it was her her, her first feature film. And when she comes on the screen in this in Super Bad. First of all, she's like more beautiful than anyone else in the, the movie, more charisma than anyone else in the movie. And her eyes just like sparkle right out of the screen. And I was like, oh, my God, who is this? I've never seen her before. She's amazing. I'm going to go look her up when I get home. I bet I'm going to be tracked on everything she's been in. And it just happened to be her first one. And I, like the reaction I had watching that, I'm sure that I'm not the only millennial who like had a very similar swooning experience watching Superbad. Oh, she gives like the best reading ever of the line. What the fuck? She goes, what the fuck? And it's so good and super bad. But I I think every millennial like imprinted on her in that movie. And ever since then, I'm always happy to see her appear somewhere. Uh, Do you have any positive or negative Emma Stone baggage coming into this film? That's interesting. I think the first movie I saw her in was Zombieland, which it says is 2009, uh, Superbad being 2007, and you're right that it was her film debut. It says also in 2009, though, she was in a movie called Ghosts of Girlfriends Past, which is a takeoff of A Christmas Carol, so we might have to track that one down. Oh man, nice. And yeah, I would say uh, positive overall. She is quite good looking. And yeah, charismatic. She captures your attention. Right. She's got huge anime eyes. Yeah, she. that's what I was going to say. I sent Dan a meme where 
they put like Emma Stone's hair on a cat with big far set eyes and said, wow, Emma Stone is so beautiful. And it's not entirely off base. She is looking a little uh, battle angel Alita here. Yeah. And I really like what they did with her eyebrows in this movie in particular. They made them like thicker and darker. And so it, everything calls attention to how big and expressive and adorable her eyes are throughout the entire movie. As for Ryan Gosling, the first thing I ever saw him in is Lars and the Real Girl. Is this one you've seen, Brian? Oh, only the trailer. <laughs> so in this movie, Ryan Gosling plays... It's a weird movie. That's a warning. It's, it's the movie about the guy who doesn't know what sex dolls are for. Yes. So basically, Ryan Gosling plays this kind of autistic-y guy who decides that he's going to like carry around this sex doll and pretend it's his real girlfriend. And the movie is like a story about how his neighborhood and family react to that. It's like, okay, like every, he kind of goes through the natural reactions that you would expect if some adult grown adult started walking around with a sex doll and saying, this is my girlfriend. And it's, it's a pretty funny and pretty weird movie. So now whenever I see him, I can, can't shake the vibe that he's just a little bit off, a little bit kooky, a little bit not quite plugged into the world around him. Always going to do something that you don't expect. And he has moments here of like unexpected intensity that I was like, OK, kind of similar vibe. Not exactly the same thing, but similar vibe to Lars and the real girl. <laughs> That's funny. No sex dolls popped out, but yeah. Coincidentally, another 2007 movie like super bad. Oh, man. I think it's time for Ryan Gosling to grow up already and become Ryan Goose. <laughs> That's a good gag. But yeah, Mia, Emma Stone, will probably use actor names and character names interchangeably. She frequently jumps from the coffee job to having to go do auditions. And like Dan said, maybe it's this first one, or just at some point early on, she spills all over herself and then has to rush and get over there to the audition but invariably the auditions do not go well there's a great shot where she's like walking out or walking in and she passes through a lobby and there's a dozen not quite emma stones sitting out there redheads wearing the same outfit she's got on i always love that beat in hollywood type stories where they're doing the audition and you see a bunch of essentially clones of yourself I know it's in Party Down. I feel like I've seen it somewhere else, too. And I also always like the beat where someone's doing an audition and it's like really persuasive and, and you're like, oh, this is awesome. And then you zoom out and you see the audition people are like checking their phone or something like that, like not moved at all. Yep. It's a huge power dynamic. The people sitting at the table have all the power and the person performing has none. It's basically a job interview like any other. But also you have to be, like, displaying emotions. So it's a little more intense. And uh, as the story goes along, we find that Emma Stone has been trying to get her big break as an actress for six years. Which is one thing I liked, seeing this in, in 2017 when I was 27. Hard to believe it's already coming up on five years since then. But that, like, these are not fresh out of college kids. They're a little older than that. And they're still trying to make their creative dream work. But uh, after this audition, Mia goes home to her apartment. A little crestfallen because it didn't go well. Like Dan said, the auditioners were 
like checking their phone or laughing when she was crying or just not really paying attention to what she was doing. She didn't win them over. And so back home to cheer her up, the roommates say, hey, come with us to a party. I guess maybe they're all actresses too. I don't know how explicit that's made. Uh, but they invite her to come to this party in the Hollywood Hills, uh, ostensibly to network. There's a whole song called Somewhere in the Crowd, where they're talking about, you know, you never know when you're going to meet the person who could make you a big star. Somebody who can lift you off the ground, they say in the song. The idea is that a party represents an opportunity to connect with someone influential in the film industry, and that this person could be your ticket to work and to fame. Which, like, on the one hand, that really seems like it's right on the edge of casting couch skeeviness. But, I mean, you could also say that in any job, whatever industry you're in, who you know is important. And you got to network. You got to go out there and you got to meet people. You got to rub elbows. And as they're getting ready for this party, I mean, the, the color never stops in this movie. Every scene's got striking use of color. But I really like the dresses they're wearing. They're all four different shades. I think it's blue, yellow, red, and green. And again, the same like oversaturated Technicolor style look. And one of our old friends shows up here, Brian. And who might that be, Dan? It's Jessica Roth. She's the one in the green dress. I had seen her credited in this, and I thought it was going to be a bigger role going in. I think I even mentioned it at the end of last episode. Oh, Jessica Roth's in that. Because I really liked her. We both really liked her in Happy Death Day and the Happy Death Day sequel. She's on screen for maybe like 100 seconds or something. It's like not very much. She does leave an impression while she's there. If you track her during this uh, bit where they're getting ready to go out, she has like five really good facial expressions and has has some presence. So she at least made the most of her, her minute on screen. But yeah. Yeah, you brought that up that she showed up on the cash list and I was trying to scan my brain of, wait a minute, I've seen La La Land twice. Where is she? And I came to the conclusion that it's got to be this scene because rarely in this movie are there more than like three people yeah. <laughs> in a scene. So... I thought she, she's she got to be one of those roommates. And yeah, you just see them briefly because they all go to the party together, but they do not leave together. So who knows who they left with, but Emma Stone, Mia, ultimately fails to connect with anybody at this party and heads off alone. And then we get a flashback to the other car on the highway that she honked at. So now we're in Ryan Gosling's car. We get Ryan Gosling's day. And this is a character named Seb, short for Sebastian, but pretty much the whole movie, everybody just calls him Seb. And so he now drives home and, and goes about his afternoon. And we learn that he is fanatically obsessed with jazz. He is a piano player, and he has ambitions of opening his own jazz club. And I guess he makes his living by playing gigs on the piano, picking up opportunities to perform on the piano where he can yeah i think this is kind of important well i thought it was important because we both we see both of them and both of them seem to be struggling for breaks you know like not established whatsoever careers hanging by a thread and so that was my impression as well that he he just he gets gigs now and then 
Tickling the ivories. Oh, yeah. And one night early on, I'm not sure if this is all this first day, but we see him hired to play Christmas carols at a cafe run by J.K. Simmons. And at the start of all this, J.K. Simmons pulls him aside because I guess they've worked together before. And J.K. Simmons says, Okay, remember, you're here to play Christmas carols on the piano and nothing else. Don't play any of that goofy freeform jazz stuff. And Ryan Gosling doesn't agree with that. (laughs) But I guess says he will enough to convince J.K. Simmons to walk 40 feet away. And he starts playing the Christmas carols, but then gets all Vince Guaraldi with it. Starts breaking away from the uh, established beaten path. He makes it maybe 90 seconds. Yeah, he's not subtle about it. And so then J.K. Simmons fires him, completely rightfully and for cause. He broke the one rule he was supposed to follow immediately. It's the equivalent of The Simpsons. Now, Homer, don't eat that pie when Marge walks away. It's like you knew it was going to happen. What were you even thinking, J.K. Simmons? I'm going to move my fingers like this, and if jazz happens, it's your own fault. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But in this moment when he's getting dismissed by J.K. Simmons, Mia is standing in the back of the restaurant. I guess she's just come out of her own failed audition and, and... experience some of Seb's jazz because specifically the tune that he's playing is what's going to be their leitmotif for the rest of their movie. It's like a little romantic something like that. Just a simple thing that uh, will recur at big moments for their relationship. It's like a sweeping thing. Yeah, It ends up becoming the song City of Stars down the line, if I'm not mistaken. But it's just this really gorgeous and evocative little piano riff. It's kind of minor key, kind of ambiguous. I I really love this. And it reminds me a lot. It's in a bar that they first hear it or maybe a restaurant. Um, Brian, have you seen Casablanca? I've never seen Casablanca. It's maybe my biggest movie hole. So there's a thing with the romantic leads in that where they have their leitmotif, it's as time goes by. And so, like, whenever that song comes up, it's like a meaningful thing to them. And it kind of defines the arc of their romance to some extent. And so that's kind of the same thing here, is, like, that song is symbolic of their relationship whenever it comes up. So Mia hears this and is, like, really into it. And is going to walk up and compliment Ryan Gosling. But he's just been fired, and so he kind of ignores her and storms out past. And then we smash cut to, now it's the spring. Another title card, although we're basically just at another pool party, which we were at at Christmas. And the point is made clear that the temperature doesn't change too much in this region. Mia runs into Seb again at this second pool party, where he's playing as part of an 80s cover band. So he's got like a Freddie Mercury or Michael Jackson, like colorful leather jacket, and he's got the little keytar. Yeah, this is great. It's like so humiliating because the last time we saw him, he was emotionally and seriously getting into his jazz piano. And then now we see him rocking a keytar playing 
dumbass eighties hair metal songs at a pool party. I was laughing. And he's got this kick ass red jacket. I want to trace down this jacket and get one for myself. I loved it. Yeah, he has a very highfalutin opinion of himself. It's like, oh no, I'm humiliated that I have paying work doing the thing that I like to do. But if it's not exactly the genre I want to play, it's just garbage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> More on that soon. But they kind of reconnect at this party and afterwards they walk back to their cars together and they have some playful banter i really like one of seb's lines here when they like at first can't find where their cars are and so ryan gosling recommends that you take your little key fob that you're pressing to to trigger the uh the bell you know the beep beep and he says oh press the remote to your chin because that will turn your skull into an antenna and it'll make the signal stronger. He says, I think it'll shorten your life, but it'll make you find your car faster. So it balances out. Yeah, that was pretty good. I think that's a really good thing to tell a girl at a party. <laughs> but my favorite gag from right around here is when they've connected at the party and she says, hey, can you get my key? Well, what's your key? It's a Prius. And it pans down. And it's literally row after row of Prius keys. And I know that everybody in California drives a Prius is kind of a joke. And that actually made me laugh out loud. That might have been my favorite individual joke of the, the movie. That is pretty good. So we get a scene where they dance together. Um, you know, a presumably non-diegetic music number. But they do like some soft shoe, saddle shoe routine on the side of a road and we've got sparks now they are apparently interested in each other and why wouldn't they be they're two photogenic young hollywood types so the next day seb shows up at mia's work because she mentioned that she was a barista on the warner brothers lot and they spend the day together they kind of give each other their bios talk about what led them to where they're at in L.A. at the moment. So Mia talks about what got her into acting. She says that she had an aunt who was also an actress. Sounds like maybe like a spinster aunt that she connected with, and they would go to the library and rent movies and appreciate classic film together as one does. And then she, you know, did theater in school, and it's led to what she's doing now. And then Seb talks about how much he loves jazz, because that is the big thing for Ryan Gosling's character. Jazz, jazz, jazz. And at first, Mia says she's not super into jazz, like maybe a lot of people. I don't know. What are your thoughts on jazz, Dan? I took a history of jazz class in college, and it was mostly learning about the type of jazz musicians that Seb is very into here. And I've listened to my fair share of jazz records, uh, but I wouldn't say I'm a jazz connoisseur. I do know something this film reflects is that there are very divergent opinions about the direction of jazz going forward. I mean, really any art, once it gets refined to a certain level, it's always a clash between classicism and experimentation. And 
Seb falls very much on the classicist line. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like all things. You got a conservative viewpoint and a progressive viewpoint. It's, do we keep things the same or do we change it for the sake of changing it? And what's going to lead to the best results? I want to... I, actually, I meant to say this a little bit ago, but I, I want to share with you my train of thought on, on him being a jazz piano player. I think there's a few different ways, and I think you're going to bring a lens to one way to think about it. But he, this was just one thing that I was thinking. So, as you mentioned, we get... Mia's winter and then we get Seb's winter and when we Seb's winter starts we hear that he's a jazz musician and he's in fact he's a pianist and my heart just sank and I was like oh I can't believe he's a pianist why did it have to be piano I hate it when they make actors play piano players every single time it pisses me off because they always have piped in piano music and they very artfully don't show the fingers of the actor playing the piano. And so then finally we get to the scene, you know, a couple minutes later where he's actually at the bar playing with J.K. Simmons playing the piano. And the very first shot we see of him playing the piano, you don't see his fingers. And I was like, oh, God, this is going to bother me all movie. But then we do start seeing him playing the fingers. And I was like is this CGI? Did they like get some professional piano player and like paste in with a green screen or something, his fingers so that it looked like Ryan Gosling was playing like legitimate sounding jazz music. And then I started, I like on my phone, Googled it as I was watching and he like trained for months to become a jazz pianist. Ryan Gosling did. And that just blew me away. I was in on this character when I learned that Ryan Gosling actually learned how to play piano to, to do all the piano stuff he had to do here. So I I had some sympathy to just for that reason alone, hearing Ryan Gosling talk about how much he actually loves jazz. That's great. I didn't even know that, but it is convincing. Like it would have been hard to fake the way the playing is presented here. It looks like he's really playing. So to know that he is, I appreciate. But yeah, on this like first kind of date where they're strolling around he espouses the view that jazz is dying and must be saved. And we'll get back to that, but it's a conviction that he holds very strongly. But they seem to have connected, and so Seb asks Mia to come watch Rebel Without a Cause with him at an old movie theater in the town. And she agrees, and then only remembers later, oh wait, I have a boyfriend. <laughs> And in fact, that night that they've agreed to meet up, she has a date with this boyfriend. She's only been seeing him for a month, in fairness. Uh, so it's uh, somebody who showed up in between the winter and spring scene. But I guess this dude is boring. We see a little bit of the date with this guy. His name is Greg. I honestly didn't even remember he was in the movie and I'd seen it twice. <laughs> but I guess it's not going anywhere with this guy. And so she bails on him to run off and meet up with Ryan Gosling at the movie theater. I think an important thing to know about Greg, it's not just that he's boring, for he is indeed a bit boring. He's talking about like stock prices and stuff and like, I don't know, contracts, you know, typical boring ease. But he's also very clearly well compensated. You know, if you're someone who's, a beautiful young actress who never got her break. You know, you kind of hope that you'll find the rich executive in LA that you can settle down with. And it seems like 
Leah is maybe going down that path and this is like the, the safe route for her. And Seb is the exciting alternate path here. So yeah, it's like her taking another chance on herself and on the, the prospect of the excitement of LA as much as it is a, a boring dude talking about stock prices. Yeah. Although honestly, I think she should have treated both of them a little bit better by like not making this mistake in the first place. Mm-hmm. It's like, if you got the obligation to the one person, you know, let the other person know, or uh, I don't know. No, I agree. Before just running out in the middle of the, the thing. Cause his brother and the brother's wife are there. Yeah. I don't know. Justice for Greg. I wonder what Greg does after this movie. Does he go get drunk with uh, Kaladin Hockley and Calabos? <laughs> uh, I mean, to be fair, Greg does not like show any violent tendencies or he, he's not a villain by any means. He's just a guy we never see again. Right. And he's handsome. It's like, you could do worse. Yeah. Although I'll say uh, this time I, I noticed that I recognized the actor, which I didn't when I saw it in 2017. And he was the villainous fop in the circus-themed season of American Horror Story. Okay. No. I haven't seen that. So maybe that's what he went and did. Yeah. He became a circus villain. But now Seb and Mia are on their first for-real date off at this movie theater, but the projector breaks down, and so instead they go to the Griffith Observatory, which is up on a hill... And they, like, take in a planetarium show and walk around a museum alone at night, just like in Some Kind of Wonderful. Hmm, that's true. I don't know. In that one, you mentioned, I think, this is a throwback to a a much earlier podcast episode, but Dan said something along the lines of, why would you want to go to an art museum alone at night? It's dark in there, and what are you going to experience? But I guess this is less an art museum and more like a science museum. My point is the date seems to go well. Yeah, and I think this movie, it has some fun about breaking the line between reality and non-diegetic music. Like, there's a lot of times where they're on a date and they're walking down the road and they just break out into a little bit of a tap dance for a moment, symbolizing, I suppose, their harmony and their, their passion. Here is the biggest reality-breaking moment of the film, I would say, where they're in this planetarium sharing a moment, and they literally rise up into the stars of the planetarium. Yeah, like a lot of the plot points are pretty low-key and realistic, and then they'll take off into space when things are romantic. I think of musicals often as being like larger than life, Mm -hmm. almost by necessity. And yet a lot of the storyline here is mundane. It's a little bit more mumblecore than most musicals is what I'm saying. Interesting. I don't think I would use mumblecore to describe really any aspect of this film. But I think I see what you're saying about it's people who are kind of low key and just trying to get by for the majority of the plot. That's right. Right. Yeah, I'm just going to try to throw new vocabulary I've recently learned <laughs> at situations that don't call for it. But it's, you know, it's... And they had a plate of shrimp at the restaurant. You know, there's no wicked witches or snow queens or, or like, French revolutions going on. That's true. None of those things. It's just two people dating in L.A. There was that one time Emma Stone said, 
Come in and know me better, man. The, other than that, there was really nothing. I don't think that happened. I, that wasn't in the yeah. cut that I watched. <laughs> uh, but it jumps ahead now, or if not now, soon, and we're getting fall pretty shortly, because the relationship blossoms and is progressing, and Mia moves into Seb's place, I guess. And one day, they're at a cafe or something, some little lunch place, and... Ryan Gosling, Seb, is approached by John Legend, playing a character named Keith. And Keith has got an offer for Seb. He says, come and play keyboard in my band, which is apparently already, like, pretty well established and pretty popular. Seb is not into this. Seb is, like, very ready to blow him off and just seems agitated that he would even ask... And I don't understand the beef that he has with Keith. What is the anti-Keith beef? This whole plot point severely deflated the middle act of the movie for me. I didn't get it. I didn't, why does he not want to talk to him? I didn't get how this guy who's just barely making ends meet is all of a sudden being pulled into like this band that they say already has a contract with Columbia. And like is a real jazz band, even though, as we're going to see, it's not exactly Seb's type of jazz band. And then I thought this was this guy who was just, he's playing guitars at pool parties. Like, he's a nobody. Why is he all of a sudden being recruited to what appears to be a borderline world-class public thing? Oh, he's actually already made it. There was no break that needed to happen. He He's already broken. It's done. He just needed to get pulled into this thing. And I this was really weird for me. Yeah, he's, I guess he's like a lone wolf. He's like a superhero who hasn't joined the Avengers yet, and now here comes Nick Fury. Not just that, it's like, oh, we need a person who fits this specific role and would make their dreams come true. Oh, yeah, this guy, he can hop into the Avengers right here. Yeah, really strange. No setup. And what I have wondered, having seen this a couple times, early on when we first meet Seb... He's having a conversation with his sister and the sister makes some offhand mention of a friend who swindled him in the past and it doesn't name the friend, but it's something like, oh, couldn't you see how things would go when you first talked to him? Didn't you know he was going to lead you down the primrose path? And I wonder if this character is that guy who was mentioned, but... There's no evidence to confirm that he is. I I don't know. That's that's literally the only straw I can grasp at of why when John Legend walks up and says, let me make your dreams come true. Ryan Gosling makes a face like he's got a stinky piece of cheese under his nose. <laughs> that thought crossed my mind, too. But if that was the intent, then they did not convey that whatsoever. Maybe there's deleted scenes or something. But then back at their apartment, there's a scene where Mia is talking to her mom on the phone. And just from what he can hear, which is only the things that Mia is saying, Ryan Gosling can pick up that her mom is not impressed that she's dumped Greg and hooked up with this dude with no prospects. And, oh, this is interesting. Well, kind of interesting. <laughs> But uh, 
remember that this film has the same songwriters, Pasek and Paul, as does Greatest Showman. And this time along, I was watching on Hulu, and afterwards it said people who watch La La Land might also watch Greatest Showman. So I watched that one too. <laughs> Just Oh, you watched it again. Immediately after this one. Nice. And the thing that I want to point out here is that both movies feature a scene where the dad or the prominent male central protagonist is fretting that he won't be able to deliver a good life to his significant other. And he looks up and sees that his roof is leaking. Really? And so when he's hearing this conversation with Mia and her mom, Ryan Gosling looks up and his ceiling is leaking. And there's like an identical shot in Greatest Showman where Barnum looks up and the roof's dripping. That's really cool. Yeah. I like that little beat. I mean, it doesn't seem like enough that you would alter the entire trajectory of your life based on fragments of one overheard conversation. But uh, maybe that is what triggered him deciding to do this John Legend gig. But I did like that beat. As someone who's had a leaky roof, I can I can empathize with like, uh, is this my life now? Dealing with leaky roofs? Yeah. Well, yeah, it's like as soon as Mia puts down the phone, Seb picks it up. And next scene, you know what? I will take that John Legend job. And he's like immediately famous. He's immediately showing up in million view YouTube clips with this group, which Wikipedia describes as a jazz fusion band. Yeah, jazz fusion. Here's my uh, college course on the history of jazz. That was one of many subgenres of jazz pioneered by Miles Davis. The most famous fusion album he did was Bitches Brew. It like brings in rock and is kind of psychedelic, like lots of electric guitar and just a nonstop flowing high energy to it. But because it isn't exactly what Seb considers to be pure jazz, he's not vibing. Uh, we haven't said, but what he really likes is like classic New Orleans jazz, like from the 20s and 30s. You know, a smoky bar room, old black guys playing saxophones and stuff. Yeah, a little bit kind of bebop, small ensemble type stuff. It's like lots of long improv solos where it bounces from one instrument to another, but extremely freeform, right? But yeah, I don't know. It seems really weird, his quest to save jazz to me, especially... When he's, like, chastising John Legend, who is black, <laughs> on the right pure way to play jazz. Right. And I think Keith, John Legend's character, makes, like, a really salient point when he says that jazz is all about improvisation and change. You can't demand that it stick to its roots. How are you going to be a revolutionary if you're such a traditionalist? Yeah. How are you going to take jazz and make it the one thing it isn't, which is regressive? Right. Like, it's free form. You can't put it in a box. It's not just one thing. Also, they bought Ryan Gosling a Seaboard, which, if you haven't seen one, is like this crazy synth keyboard. But instead of having keys, it's like a velvet mat 
vaguely shaped into a piano keyboard. So, like, you can put your fingers in between existing keys and make notes that aren't quite those notes. And, like, the whole thing is one touch surface that's electrified. And it looks really cool, and it sounds cool, and they're crazy expensive. But they got one for Seb in this movie. And, like, he's still making that stinky cheese face. Like, (laughs) oh, this is drudgery that I'm in this huge hit music group playing this crazy expensive instrument I could never afford on my own. Yeah, I think La La Land got a decent amount of backlash for this. I mean, it's, I think, well documented that a lot of people who like classic jazz are white intellectuals, whereas the birth of jazz was very much, as you mentioned or alluded to, a organic black piece of culture. The fact that the guy trying to save jazz was a white movie star, you know, I think bugged a lot of people who have put in some thought into such things. But here's why it actually didn't bug me all that much is to me, it really resonated as a metaphor for Damien Chazelle and where he is at in his movie making career and really just the art of movie making and really making any art. It's the struggle of someone who wants to follow their own voice, but also create something that will be widely loved and embraced but isn't your version of the artistic ideal so like how do you blend the mainstream success versus the iconoclastic traditional view and if you think of whiplash as his small little chamber piece that is ryan gosling playing a little piano riff in front of jk simmons when no one is expecting that and his transition to big budget hollywood pictures being him going up on stage with John Legend, it feels at least a little bit more resonant or like he had, he kind of understood the emotions of it. So I kind of saw it as much about the mainstream, try to get followers and money and attention versus the small scale, follow your own path as it was about traditional versus progressive or something. You know, I can see that. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. But also it's the thing of having like a specific vision that you want to bring to the world and feeling stifled when you can't bring that about. But now Ryan Gosling's making some money. They have some coins to rub together. And so Mia is actually able to quit her barista job. And Seb encourages her to, you know, since the auditions aren't going anywhere, maybe you should write a play, and perform in that. So what she decides to write is a one-woman show, which we don't see much or any of it, but it seems that it's about her experiences growing up and moving to Hollywood. Like, doing acting in high school and being inspired by her aunt and, and moving out to L.A. This, to me, is really dumb. This is a dumb plan. <laughs> There's no way that this is going to work. Does not every other struggling actor have exactly the same story? Like, this to me is not a story that requires even a writer to tell. It's like, this is the lived experience of everybody who's out there. So if your master plan is you're going to go, like, break away and be the rogue who makes this thing to stick out and show yourself, don't 
tell everybody else's story. I don't know. I mean, it's yours because it's about Boulder City, Nevada, which is specifically where you came from, but I don't know. No, I agree. I mean, it eventually gets there. I think that it's part of the point is that this is a really hard sell. Like, it's kind of navel-gazy and why would anyone care? But I think the flip side of it to the movie and to Mia's credit is that Mia has, with her relationship with Ryan Gosling, decided to embrace that spark, the thing that initially inspired her and followed that muse. And so this is like emblematic of her saying, I'm not going to do the dumb OC versus dangerous minds audition. I'm going to focus on following my own true spirit. And so that's what this is kind of representative of. Oh, you're right. It's a common theme that the big popular appeal soulless thing is not what you want to go for. You want to make the smaller, artistically meaningful thing. Right, and that's kind of shared between them. Oh, it's gelling for me now. Huh. That might boost my rating a little bit. But of course, now Seb is never around because he is touring with the band. Although, one night he shows up in town to surprise Mia. They actually end up fighting because Mia's like, well, how come you're never around anymore? And he says, well, I'm in this group now, and, like, if we're not on the road touring, then we're in the studio recording, because that's the way a big music industry job works. And also, you know, he kind of balks that he took the job in the first place so that she would think better of him and they would have some more money. And she says something along the lines of, well, is this the music that you want to play? Which we know it isn't, but... At the same time, like, can two people really share that much of a stickler view that it's got to be this one kind of jazz? I don't know. It, it kept rubbing me the wrong way of like, yes, but you're making a lot of money. Like, nobody raises that view enough. I think Greg needs to walk in the door and be like, okay, I've finished your taxes and look how much your income has increased. Right. I think this would click just a little bit more if the thing he was doing was like three layers removed from his dream, not one layer removed from his dream. Exactly. If he was, I don't know. I don't even know what an example is. If he was like recording commercials for local TV stations or something that wasn't even really like artistic whatsoever, it would make a little more sense. I do think the argument overall works in the context of the story in the sense that they're both struggling with the battle of follow your true spirit versus sell out and go for the bigger thing. It's not the only theme in play here, but it, it kind of works. But I agree that there was something just a little bit off about how this how this was playing out. On the other hand, I can also see like Emma Stone's future dawning in front of her if she's going to be the one waiting at home while the big musician plays for a crowd of tens of thousands you know, four, four nights a week across the U.S. and then comes home, you know, twice a month to spend one night with her. And all of a sudden, like this thing that was ostensibly for her benefit has completely gotten away from her and that that would be kind of daunting as well. Yeah, that's another great point. I will say I have cousins who are professional musicians and like half their songs are about how they have to be on the road all the time mm -hmm. and are never home. Journeys Faithfully, the epitome of a song about that topic for me. Uh, but eventually, 
you know, Seb is still on the road. Now there's a little bit of tension, I guess, in the relationship. We don't know how things are going to pan out long term. But the day of the show, the one woman show rolls around and nobody shows up. Basically, there's like five or ten people in this big audience and she rented out the whole theater to be able to do it. I'm not surprised there wasn't a huge turnout for this thing. I gotta say, <laughs> especially if it's one night only. This was a plot point that I could really see coming a mile away that this one woman show that she kind of followed on a whim did not appear to be anything other than a lark that didn't go anywhere. And unfortunately, Seb was not able to make it either because unexpectedly he got pulled into a photo shoot. <laughs> Although I do kind of like some of the instructions that the photographer is giving him. Like, oh, bite your lip. Now, like, make a face like this. So I watched this other movie called Lemon from 2017 this week also. I didn't know it when I started it, but it also is kind of about aspiring actors, entertainment people. And it also has a pretty elaborate riff on how goofy photographers are in the entertainment industry. I guess this is a thing. I feel like this shows up whenever you have a any sort of satire or depiction of the entertainment industry is that the photographers are always weirdos. So I don't know. I just thought that was kind of an interesting thing to recur. Yeah, it's something that we're not enough of a part of the industry to gauge how accurate that is. Maybe someday the goods will be there. Yeah, we're big deal podcasters, but we haven't broken into the motion pictures yet. And so Seb walks in the door late. And after this fiasco at the little nothing theater... Mia announces that she has given up acting and she's going home to her parents' house, which, as we've learned, is in a place called Boulder City, Nevada. Like, as soon as she's out the door, Seb gets a call on the phone from a person who apparently is a big deal casting director who just happened to go to this one woman show and was blown away because, like Dan watching Superbad, holy shit, who is this woman? We need to put Emma Stone in more movies. And she's going to offer Mia a shot at a life-changing role. And like, wow. <laughs> this is even less plausible to me than John Legend walking up. <laughs> so the reason that this didn't bother me quite as much is I know it's a thing that movie executives want to find quote-unquote fresh voices. And so they go to places where you might find fringe talent struggling to get by that might have something interesting to say or some unique charm. It did seem, given that there was like a total of seven people in the audience, that the super influential casting agent who's going to be doing a massive movie coming up just so happened to go to this thing and determined that this person was the right person for it. But yeah... It didn't ring quite as hollow for me as the John Legend one did. The John Legend twist. Okay, no, you keep making good points. Uh, it would make sense that they're like trying to scoop up somebody new who's cheap and that people aren't familiar with. Give her a shot. Why not? But now Emma has gone back to Nevada. And so Seb jumps in the car to go drag her back. I looked it up on Google Maps. Boulder City is like between a five and six hour drive either way from Los Angeles. So it's not a trivial thing that he's doing. Right. Here. 
One thing I want to throw in, I don't think you mentioned, is that when she announces she's going back home, she more or less makes clear that she's also done with him. That she's like leaving everything L.A., including him behind. So it's kind of an ambiguous relationship state as far as we know, but it seems like they're basically broken up at this point. Yeah, she says it's over and he says what? And then she says after like a couple times being asked the acting, but it, yeah, it sounds like also between them. But he convinces her to come back and do this audition and the setup for it is kind of unusual because the agent who saw the play, I guess, and the other people sitting around at the table tell her that this movie doesn't have a script yet. So they don't have any sides, any lines to hand to her. They say they're going to base the film around the actress they decide to cast. And that, to me... To, again, use the new vocabulary, sounds especially mumblecore. <laughs> like, oh, we'll just take whoever we've got, and that'll just be the film. And we don't need a script, because it'll just grow organically out of who we've got and whatever's going on. I'm still, I still don't think mumblecore is the word I would use to describe that, but I think we're getting closer. Okay, I'll learn someday. So they just say, since we don't have lines for you, tell us a story. And so once again, she returns to the well of drawing on her stories with her aunt or aunt. I keep saying aunt. In my day to day, I would say aunt. If I was talking to my aunt, I would say aunt. Sometimes people act patronizing if you say aunt. It's like, oh, my aunt. It's just I just want to be clear who we're talking about here. I think you would know. It's not the animal and ant. It is a familial relationship that you have. Your parents' sister. No, I follow. I track with you. I say ant as well, but I have said aunt. And I don't know what inspires me to say one versus the other. But let's just say I, I understand. For me, it's if I'm reading... If I'm reading something, I will say aunt. And since mm. we do type out quite a bit of notes for our program. A-U. Aw. Oh. Yes. But if I'm talking to one of my aunts, I'm going to call her Aunt Barbara or Aunt Patsy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's where I'm coming from. Anyway, this person was influential on her, and so that's who she's talking about. She starts saying that her aunt was a creative person and kind of eccentric and lived life in the moment. And this description morphs into a song, which I think is just called audition, but is like also known as the ones who dream because the message of the song is that actors and performers and other creative types are valuable to society. And that it's worthwhile to to follow your heart, to pursue the thing that calls to your heart. And this, to me, was just really powerful. Like, I broke down sobbing the first time I watched this scene in the theater, and also the second time. It's the reason that this is the only movie I went back to see again when I had that pass. Yeah, it's it's really lovely. Like, this really punched me in the gut. Oh, I'm glad it spoke to you so much. Because 
the people are won over. This is finally when the dam breaks, and now people love Emma Stone. Although we don't know it right away. Right. There's like... It hangs in the air for a moment. The one thing that I will say about this that I wish I could have had the same reaction you did, but pulled me out. In general, I think the direction is amazing for the musical numbers. This one, it does like a swoop around Emma Stone, like a circular swoop. And I, I don't know why, but this just really distracted me. And like, I was not really paying attention to the music because I was thinking, why is the camera swooping around Emma Stone? This is kind of weird. And for whatever reason, that that caught me off guard and uh, didn't click with me. But I, I love the this was one of the better songs. And I agree that the message, it's like the theme in a nutshell here. Right. I will say this is one musical number that stays a little more grounded in reality, like nobody's flying around. Mm -hmm. So that sets it apart a bit. And I didn't I didn't cry this third time, but uh, I still quite like it. It spoke to me in January 2017. Two for three on on crying. So that's good. Yes. And just to go back to that 24 speed film that we made that didn't make any sense to anybody other than me. Uh, but the, the point was that 24 Speed is a small, independent, artistic endeavor that ultimately nobody sees and doesn't mean anything to anyone except the people who make it. And so that I saw the connection. It's, you know, continuing to make something even though it may never go anywhere just because it's important to you. I saw a parallel between what is 24 Speed and what is La La Land. Mm. Outside of the office after this audition, Seb and Mia are musing on how this might go. Like, maybe she will get the part. And what would happen then? Because one thing that the filmmakers said is that they're going to make this movie in France. Paris, specifically. I mean, I guess it makes sense that they would come all this way to cast Hollywood actors. But I, when it sounds like they don't have any plan for what this movie is going to be... I don't know. It seems I, I just want to know more about what this movie's going to be. And ultimately we're left unfulfilled. And But it sounds like it's going to be artsy because it's <laughs> they're in Paris and they're making it up as they go. And they want to cast no name actors. So who knows? Yeah. And I think another important thing is that it's centered around the actor or actress they select. So it's like celebrating that one person and giving them a voice true but seb says pretty sensibly oh well if you get cast obviously you should go and do it and move to france and be the movie star but he kind of less sensibly says and i'll have to stay here and work on my jazz bar granted she did encourage him earlier during the fight you know you shouldn't be off with john legend you should be pursuing your dream that made me fall in love with you of starting a jazz club but seb makes a mention that they have a lot of good jazz in paris and it seems like you could play jazz anywhere you go and maybe even have a nightclub anywhere you go although he does seem like hellbent on getting this one location that he keeps talking about so maybe that's why he's got to stay in place but he seems convinced, and we know Ryan Gosling here has strong convictions mm -hmm. that he's got to stay in L.A. 
once he's decided that the sex doll is his girlfriend, that's the, his, the sex doll is his girlfriend. Everybody's just got to accept it and embrace it. Yeah. And in this case, the sex doll is a tapas place, but it has like jazz significance. And he's got to do that. Yeah, this whole thing, it was a little weird, too. It it didn't bug me as much as the John Legend thing. It was a little bit of movie logic. Like, they both kind of decided that they're following their own paths. And that's okay. But I agree. Like, if you're just coming at this from a purely logical angle, we, if she gets the job, follow her. Go with her. Go to Paris. Fall in love with her in Paris. Listen to good jazz for a month. Get her big paycheck. And hey, maybe if you're back together and in love, she'll give you a quarter of that paycheck to go open your dream bar. Exactly. Let her be the breadwinner for a little while, like you have been with your big band when she quit her coffee job and was living in your apartment. It's like, yeah, just have a little bit of turnabout for a little while until you're both successful. Why can't this work? Yeah. But I guess it doesn't because the next scene is winter again, except now we're five years in the future. And we see that now Mia actually is Emma Stone level famous. She is just passing through L.A. one night, accompanied by a husband who is not Sebastian. And it's not even Greg. Right. It's somebody new. And I'll say I did not recognize this actor, but Dan did. So who is it, Dan? I lost my mind when I saw I like I was watching with my headphones on and I made guttural noises when I saw it. I just couldn't believe my eyes. It's Tom Everett Scott, who most of you are like, Tom Everett Scott, who's that? One of my favorite movies in the world, perhaps my favorite movie in the world, is That Thing You Do, which is about a one-hit wonder band in the 60s. And Tom Everett Scott is the star, and he plays the drummer. His name is Guy Patterson. It's the character's name. He also goes by Skitch. He keeps saying, I am Spartacus. He's a great character, great. I always thought this guy should have been a star, and he never ended up a star. For all I knew, I think I saw that he was cast in a Hallmark movie a year ago or something like that. So for all I knew, this dude is just essentially out of Hollywood or doing like really small gigs. Completely forgotten to Hollywood. Then he gets the he gets Emma Stone. There he is. It's the star of my favorite movie. He's the one who's the, the guy who landed the girl. And I just lost my mind, man. This was great. <laughs> yeah, it, not a super consequential role, but he's the guy. No, and, and one thing I want to just emphasize is the movie tries to leave ambiguous for like five minutes. Maybe not that long, maybe two minutes. Oh, we see some of Mia and we see some of Seb. And oh, they're both going home. Are they going to the same home? No, it's a different home. In fact, Seb is still single and Mia is with Guy Patterson. And as soon as they did the thing where they were like, we're going to go our separate ways. And then it cut to the future. I knew they weren't going to be together. And so that felt a little, a little like leading you on a little bit, but yeah, I I will say though, there's like nine moments where I got chills from the time that we see that we're in winter in the future. And only one of those is when Guy Patterson was the, the husband or the boyfriend or whoever it is. Yeah, they wanted to get you in this final scene. Get your emotions going. Because as Guy Patterson and Mia are driving around L.A., they're trapped yet again in 
the traffic on an exit ramp, and they decide to get out of the traffic for a little bit, take the ramp into the town, and get some dinner. And just by chance, they stop at that jazz club from before. Only now, it's called Seb's. And it has the logo that Mia herself designed. And there's Ryan Gosling in there doing his thing, leading the jazz group. I think he's like a conductor at first, or just the MC. Then he spots her there in the crowd. And he goes up and he starts playing that leitmotif on the piano. Yeah, City of Stars. Well, we'll, we'll talk more about City of Stars in a minute here. But he's playing that tune, and... We go into this 10-minute sequence that's like a daydream brought on by the music. It's like a shared dream. It's the the message that he's sending to her or just the, the perceptions that they're both having in this moment of reconnecting. The music carries them through this alternate version of the timeline of the last six years. And so this is the what if of their relationship. And it's like... If every single interaction that they ever had now unfolded perfectly. This sequence really has some neat production design because once again, we get some flights of fancy during the musical numbers. And there's like a globe trotting, almost like an Indiana Jones transition where there's a a literal physical globe spinning around and there's like a little toy plane looping around it. There's like big fake painted backdrops and just all kinds of theatrical artifice that draw your attention to their artificiality and artistic nature. But what we're seeing is like all the past scenes of them together only now unfolding unrealistically perfectly. What were some of your thoughts about this sequence, Dan? First of all, an utter triumph of visual energy of a musical and just capturing like seven, probably more than seven, but 12 different mise-en-scenes of just, oh, here's a weird silhouette thing. So like the audition bit is reenacted in this black and white silhouette. Oh, here's a painting come to life. Oh, here's like a grainy film thing. And oh, here they're doing an elaborate waltzy dance in this just beautifully rendered lights in the sky reflecting off a thin layer of water on the ground. And uh, I was blown away. This is just phenomenal. I mean, I got, I had chills seven times during this segment of just kind of giving us the one that our heart wanted in a different look. And we know it's a daydream. We know it's a false reality. I just thought it was brilliant from start to finish. I really liked it. It's a bittersweet and kind of odd way for the movie to more or less wrap up. But I just think the way that it kind of poetically tied the triggering of the City of Stars leitmotif, bringing her back to that moment that they bumped into each other when Ryan Gosling was fired. So that's the first time we heard it in the movie, this this little City of Stars motif. And then as soon as he plays it in his club in the future, we see it jump to the past. And then the way it kind of all ties together. I don't know. It was very evocative for me. It's like Damien Chazelle pulled out all the stops 
for bringing in every interesting visual layout for a musical that he could in these seven minutes or however long it is. I mean, in the end, it's, you know, it's kind of circling around a drain that we know is not the the real truth. And so it's it's a little, I don't know what the right word is. It's a little something that is just pulling at your heart for the sake of pulling at your heart. But for me, this was a beautiful, elliptical, amazing, evocative payoff of everything that we had seen leading up to this. So I thought it was awesome. I thought it was an eight out of eight bit of film for me. I don't know. It's, are you more mixed on it than I am? Well, bitter, bittersweet is a great word. I think this sequence is probably the biggest memory a lot of people are going to have of the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, this is the key thing. Like, the unique thing it's offering up is this final what if. And we know it can't actually be or have been this way. But, you know, music brings on the dream. Like, in a perfect world. And I'm sure everybody's got a, a thing like that where it's a trigger that'll take you back in time to a romance that could have branched out a different way. But I have some huge problems with this sequence. I, I'm going to try to lay them out here in a way that makes sense. Because, yeah, it does have the coolest visuals. And it's succinct. And a lot of it is really neat. But... This perfect timeline that gets presented requires that a whole lot of things happen in unnatural and even nonsensical ways. A lot of the changes in this timeline come down to factors beyond what Seb and Mia would have ever had the power to control. It's not decisions that they would have made in any case. For example, in this timeline, like Dan said, it starts out with them back in... J.K. Simmons's cafe, where, like, instead of Ryan Gosling getting fired, now J.K. Simmons is just a smiling, jolly guy. He's, like, high-fiving them and snapping and dancing. Like, why would he have done that? He told Seb to specifically play the Christmas tunes and not the jazz, and there's no universe where that should have changed. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, and that that seems nitpicky, but like every single thing that we see in this imaginary timeline is like that. For instance, Mia puts on her little play and now suddenly the house is packed. Like what changed to affect that? Why would suddenly a whole bunch of people show up? But also other plot points in the film are dependent on things having played out a certain way a to b to c and if they hadn't you know like back to the future things would have turned out differently further on down the line for instance in this perfect timeline that we see seb shoes john legend away when they first meet him and he never takes the fancy popular band gig but like if he didn't do that they wouldn't have had the money for Emma Stone to quit her coffee job and she wouldn't have been able to work on the one-woman show. So she never would have had the house to get packed in the first place. So here is my script revision fix. Often in our podcast episodes, Dan comes in and he's got these notes for what would have made a better script, what would have made a better story. Well, for me, it's simple. Just start this sequence not at the very first moment that they ever met, 
start it outside the audition place. Mm. And like, instead of him saying, oh, we got to go our separate ways, just show what would have happened if they hadn't gone their separate ways. That's the only thing that needs to be different for them to stay together, which is where this sequence ends up is with them being the ones who are married with kids. That That's a really interesting. I need to think through what that would look like. I will say, I mean, I think the point of it is that they in their heads are reimagining the things that actually happened and reimagining them in a very artificial theatrical way so that that specific moment is romanticized to its perfection. So it's, it's not a true what if in the sense that it doesn't like, it's not a butterfly effect. You flap your wing this way instead of that way. And now all of a sudden, Oh, maybe this could have gone this way. And then, that would have meant this would have gone this way. I don't think that's the intent. I think it's reviewing their history and all of the romantic passions that they had and an idealized version of that. What would that actually look like if it had gone in the same way that they felt it in their heart in that moment, rather than an actual plausible alternate timeline? I agree that if if you try to think through the sequence of events, the things that we see don't make a lick of sense. But to me, that's not even the point of it. It's it's to capture in a dreamlike alternate version the passion of it and the dream of what it could have represented in some way. So I respect your proposed revision and I got to think through what that would look like. Are you saying that that we actually get the flashback at the audition scene? Or are you saying that when they see it in the future... It starts at the audition scene when they flash back. So, like, we still get the winter five years later, but then when, like, if we must have this flashback and alternate timeline sequence, the first thing we see in the flashback should be the end of the audition. Okay, I see what you're saying. Basically the same thing, just like a third as long. Gotcha. But I might even argue for not even, I, I don't know. It's it's something that sticks out to me every time and is like stuck out to me more each subsequent viewing. It's certainly indulgent. And and maybe it's just that I like time travel movies a lot. And so <laughs> like, no, if you make this change, the rest of it doesn't hold together. If you think of it as a time travel moment, then I 100% agree that things don't line up. But that's not how I see it. So. But, like, at the same time, I'm frustrated of it's it's not hard to imagine how they could be together. It's like it doesn't have to be a perfect timeline for them to have ended up together. It's just go to France, Ryan Gosling. Right. You don't need a whole dramatic, elaborate, oh, look at how fancy and silly we're being when we imagine this perfect reality where every one thing comes together. And that is the one way that we could. No, it doesn't need to be all that. Just freaking hop on a plane for two months, dude. That's all you got to do. And then you get the girl and you get a club a couple years later. You don't need, it doesn't need to be this fantastical Hollywood thing turned into this elaborate fantasy that you've imagined in your brain where this one thing, not this one thing, where every single thing happens to its theoretical, passionate maximum. You literally have to make one different choice for the outcome where you're together. I agree with that. But the cookie is crumbled and the die has been cast. And so 
we snap back to reality when the song ends. And now here we are in the darkest timeline, I guess. Or, or whatever it is, reality. Just, just reality. It's what actually happened. I want to point out it's very much not the darkest reality. We had two struggling, aspiring entertainers at the start of the story. And they both have made it in a massive way. That is very far from the darkest timeline. And that is, in fact, a, a negative for this movie. I don't know if it's a negative. It's a reason to be skeptical of this movie. Is that they both get their wishes to come true. And yeah, we, they don't end up together. So, oh, it's kind of sad. But they they both fulfilled their dreams. It feels like 90 plus percent of the people who are in L.A. in their scenario are not going to get it. And yet somehow both of these people did for different reasons. I don't know. That's a little dubious to me. Oh, man. I'm really curious this episode what you're going to rate this one because I, I keep thinking I know what it is <laughs> and then it'll like waver a little bit. I, I hope you sealed your envelope at the start of tonight and I'm not swaying you too much. I did. Yeah, it's locked in. And I, I just hope that we get handed the right cards to read. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Seb and Mia exchange wistful smiles, but then she's off with Guy Patterson back into the night and he strikes up another song with his band as the credits roll. And that's La La Land 2016. La La Land. Boom. So I had a couple more things to talk about about the film. Some uh, good things, bad things. Go for it. Uh, so I think it's got to be said that this film deserves some kudos just for being an original musical that makes money and is critically successful as well as commercially. Yeah, no, and 2021 has been a big year for musicals, but none of the noteworthy ones have been original unless you want to go down like in Encanto or anything like that. But I'm thinking West Side Story. Yeah, like Disney would be the main example probably. But as far as live action ones go... We got West Side Story. You got Dear Evan Hansen. And I like to see musicals coming back. But you're right. This is cool that it's kind of like it's just something I said about Greatest Showman. And I feel it here, too. I'm with you. It's cool to see real ass musicals made for the film and to get some traction for the cinema. I also like the premise of it. You know, it's not all that uncommon to have movies about making movies. But I think this one does well presenting the allure of L.A. and how it draws in those who dream, as they call them in the song. Mm -hmm. And how it takes that premise to a bittersweet place at times. Like, it's not always happy-go-lucky, even though, <laughs> like you said, let's not ignore the fact that they do both achieve their dreams. Yeah, there's a moment really well acted by Emma Stone when Ryan Gosling is trying to convince her to come back and she is like breaking down about the emotional toll and the fear of putting yourself on the line over and over again, only to get rejected over and over again. And why, like, it just might be a more sane thing to stop doing that. And that to me is really potent. Like this movie feels like it was made by people who, at one point had to struggle to get by, had to struggle to get their voice out there in L.A. And I think that is extremely evocative in this film. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that scene where she says, you know, what if I'm not good enough? What if it's never going to happen? 
and we just need to accept that. Uh, I'll say that uh, when I saw this movie the first time, I think I was into season four of my public access TV show, and now I'm looking back after nine seasons. Oh, man. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. Having, you know, any kind of low-key creative leanings and grasping that that might not actually ever take you anywhere is a big part of why this film packed a punch for me. And uh, what about you, Dan? Did you have any other good things that you wanted to call out? I want to reemphasize that I thought the color on this was amazing. And in general, it's a breathtaking visual accomplishment, this film. To be honest, this might only fall behind Titanic in terms of movies that I wish I could have seen on the big screen as the way that I consumed it. I just think it looks so good. Everything about it. The colors are great. The compositions are great. The choreography. It's not too elaborate or overly physical, but it's its very evocative. And just the prospect of seeing this spread out across your whole line of vision and you being fully immersed in that, that to me, I, I want to see this someday. This is a candidate for me to be a movie that I pick if if I ever rent out a theater celebration of some sort again, because I would want to see what this movie looks like and feels like in full widescreen cinema projection, Dolby surround sound, etc. Because I want to see that. Cool. Well, I'll say I did that once and it was compelling enough to go and do it a second time. <laughs> so you've done it twice. So I would encourage you to track it down that way. Maybe their fifth or tenth. An Wait, no, we passed the fifth anniversary. Maybe the tenth anniversary they'll do it. Oh, tenth anniversary of the film? That would be 2026, so I'd have to wait four years. Yeah, I'll have to see. Or maybe the pandemic will keep raging on and you can, you know, get the theater rented out for not too much. Like we did for Iron Giant, a previous episode. I would do it again for La La Land, although I don't think we would talk about it again. She said she would do it again that's a line from the audition song mm. then uh i mean all the things that stick out to me as as maybe not so good i've already laid them out i think it's a little unusual that the musical is really just a story about two people it's just kind of low stakes is not the word because it is their like livelihood and and their fate but I normally think of musicals as having like more people in the mix and just more going on in terms of numbers. So it, that is maybe not a bad thing, just a little bit unusual. Yeah, that didn't bug me at all. I really like the way that it framed the story from just two people, but I can see what you're saying. I think the saving jazz plot line sticks out and may be more of a stumbling block for you depending on your views you know it's not a huge thing to me i just think it's a little weird mm -hmm. and then like i said the uh the greatest timeline here at the end i think it, i don't know <laughs> it's it's good because it's like emotionally resonant but i think if you pick it apart at all it just all crumbles for me but we've we've talked that to death so yeah i loved it <laughs> My two main not-so-good things, one of them I've already brought up, it just felt unrealistic to me that they both got their happily ever after, and I know we have a bittersweet 
oh, they didn't end up together. And that is extremely emotionally resonant for sure. But it just still felt like, oh, well, I don't feel bad for either of them. You were the needle in the haystack that was picked. Two people were both the needles in the haystack. Congratulations. That was a bit of a stumbling block for me. I mean, it kind of fits in the context of the movie and all the arcs we see and everything. And I don't know if it would be quite as romantic and widely lovable as a story if one or both of them just went on their life floundering and going back to Boulder, Nevada or whatever. Yeah, it's it's not blah, blah, bland. (laughs) That's good. I like that. The other thing is the majority of the comedy aspects did not land for me in this movie. There's a couple things they do a lot of that I didn't really like. And one is where something almost happens and then something interrupts it. I don't know, like, oh, they're about to kiss, but oh, a thing interrupts it. And it just happened like five times. And I was pretty tired of it by the time the movie ended. And a lot of the jokes weren't very funny to me, but a couple of them were. So I don't know. That was just a minor issue for me, but that was certainly something is... I felt like it was kind of, I don't know if try hard is the right word, but it tried to force comedy in ways that didn't make me actually laugh. Yeah, that's interesting. Comedy is not a major adjective I'd use to describe the film, but there are some beats, you're right, that they are like trying for a laugh. Mm-hmm. Although, like I said, I I do like the line about the skull antenna. <laughs> When Ryan Gosling gets to play his inner weirdo, I dig it, yeah. So, Dan, can you tell me, is this movie good? Is it good is our signature section, where we each give the movie a rating on our eight-point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, which is our one out of eight score, to our masterpiece rating, Tour de Good, an eight out of eight. Well, Brian, is La La Land good? I will start by saying, yes, it is good. And how good is it? Man, I thought a lot about this. This is one of those ones where every time I thought I had locked in on a rating, I changed my mind because I thought of something else. Here's where I'm going to land. I'm going to give this a 7 out of 8. I'm going to call it an exceptionally good film. I really think this is a movie that is exceptionally good. I'm nearly the thinnest of hairs from a tour de good, a masterpiece rating. Yeah, it was really sounding like you might drop the 8 because... I I didn't want to bring you bring you down. I'm really close to that. And the thing that really I kept coming back to as soon as I was locked in on an eight is, well, the first half of the movie is about two people who want to know if they can make it. And then extremely abruptly, it's a movie about is the way that I have made it sufficiently authentic, at least for Ryan Gosling. And that really pulled me out of it a little bit. And I don't know, it's it's a really emotional film. It's one that like it's kind of up there with Titanic in the sense that I don't want to overdo it. I want to like wait four years before I see this again to not cheapen the emotional impact of it. But I really love this movie. It's going on my top 100 films, which we talked about last week when I make my next version of it. This was a delight and a treat and I love the story. I love the leads. The music is another thing that just kept me from putting it over the top because I feel like a handful of the numbers were kind of meh, but City of Stars really did it for me. 
in the context of the film. I'm not sure the music by itself would, but in the context of the film, it really got me. And I would say just the way that it's used to, to, to capture the relationship between Emma and Ryan or Mia and Seb was really evocative for me. I also really liked the ending. I, I thought that worked for me. That I thought that was a really creative a way to like let us feel a certain thing and then kind of wrap it up right away. I am right on the edge of an eight and uh, I'm going to land on a, a very high seven out of eight exceptionally good for La La Land. What about you, Brian? Is La La Land good? So I'll say that if you had grabbed me when I first walked out of the first screening that I saw of this movie, I'd be exactly right there with you. Unquestionably exceptionally good verging on masterpiece but that's not where i'm gonna land and if anybody has been listening to the podcast for a while i suspect it's not that engaging when we come down on something and we're just a point apart that doesn't really sound like a huge distinction and i guess it isn't dan has gone through the records and calculated that like our averages are like identical and in, in fact, often many weeks are identical. Just cumulatively, we've given out the same number of points. Something like that, right? Mm-hmm. As of prior to me giving my rating a minute ago, we had exactly the same average rating across the history of our podcast. Uh, so when I say that I'm going to give this a six, a very good, that may not sound like a tremendous gulf. Uh, but it, it does drag it down for me, These uh, what I see as inconsistencies in the the finale sequence, especially. Uh, but you know what? Every point I brought to bear this episode, you've had a really compelling counter-argument for, Dan. And so maybe I need to go back to the tape. Maybe I need to think about it again, watch it again. Um, because, yeah, what really speaks to me about this movie and has every time I've watched it is the theme of the struggling artists and will they ever make it and maybe they won't and in this case they both do but you know that there are so many other people sitting in those cars on that road at the start who don't just to have a big musical about the idea of success in hollywood that's at least like tinged throughout with the possibility of loss and being forgotten is super evocative so there is a lot that is good about this movie there's a lot that is very good exceptionally good there's some masterpiece stuff in the mix and so i'm glad that it is up there for you definitely i really like this one thank you for sharing it with me brian i don't know when i would have got around to seeing it if you hadn't picked it but i'm very glad that i did and you know, out of movies I've seen in 2016, this would have been my best picture thus far. Although I have not seen Moonlight. Yeah, I'll say I was sitting there rooting for it. And then it kept winning, you know, everything it was nominated for. is like, ding, 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 getting up there. Best picture. Okay, come on up, guys. Oh, wait, no, never mind. <laughs> Go sit back down. <laughs> really surreal. I don't think that's ever happened apart from this time. But again... You know, a bittersweet moment, uh, but not really because they did win like six Oscars. So <laughs> they still achieved their dreams. Yeah. Yeah. There's that what if moment, but like, don't feel too bad for any of these people. And Damien Chazelle is not a passing fad. He's made like 
two movies since, and I think he's a hot name still. So he'll be around. Well, I'm glad we could experience La La Land together. I do recommend to the folks out there that you check this one out. I think you'll get something out of it. And Dan, what will we be watching next? So Brian, something that's come up in our conversations in this podcast is that you have a slate of movies that you consider original The Goods candidates. And this comes from the fact that The Goods was at one point going to be a recurring written feature on our old blog before it evolved into a podcast and became the pitch for a podcast. So you have a little bit more context for what is an original The Goods pick. But I will say that when we started the podcast, I had a short list of movies that I knew I wanted to bring up at some point. And so those are my original The Goods picks. And I'm about to bring one to the show. This is a movie that I consider relevant because we had two snowstorms the past week. We had one on Sunday night to Monday and then one on Thursday night to Friday. And the local schools were canceled for a whole week after that. In fact, you could say they had five snow days. Indeed, the movie that I will be selecting is the 2000 Nickelodeon-made film entitled Snow Day, starring, I don't know who's actually the first build. It might be Chevy Chase, although he's not the main star. But think Disney Channel original movie, but Nickelodeon movie, but also theatrical. So it has a couple of uh, Hollywood stars in it. And this is a movie that stuck with me from when I was 12 years old onwards for a few reasons that we'll talk about. I don't think it would ever be involved in a best picture snafu, let's say, but there's some reasons that I'm fond of it. So, Brian, I look forward to discussing the 2000 film (laughs) Snow Day with you next week. Man. Well, for one, I'm excited about that. This will be cool. I've never seen Snow Day, but I know that you've been holding this one back for a while. I like when we can have picks that are seasonal, but like not a holiday film. Yeah. You know, th- like this one makes sense to me for to be a winter film. La La Land does because it starts out in the winter and that's when I watched it. Um, Snow Day is definitely a little more on theme even than that. But I just really love the idea of <laughs> them... <laughs> announcing that La La Land had won the best picture. But in fact, no, it was Snow Day from (laughs) a decade and a half earlier. And then the Snow Day cast comes out and takes the stage. Chris Elliott, just the, I don't know if you know who Chris Elliott is. You'll recognize him. I just imagine him coming up on stage with like a booger on his chin or something like that. And yeah, no, that would be pretty funny. That really would have been even more out of left field. <laughs> if only. Just imagine that timeline. That That is the greatest timeline, Brian. <laughs> and thank you for joining us here on The Goods. Hope you'll check it out again next time. And now that you've heard from us, let's hear from someone else. Email us a review of La La Land or any film we've previously discussed on this podcast. And we might read yours. If we do pick your review, we're going to send you a $5 Amazon gift card. Enough for a free movie rental. You can send your review to thegoodsfilmpodcast at gmail.com. That's thegoodsfilmpodcast at gmail.com. So, Brian, our review of the week this week is from a gentleman named Matt, who has his own podcast known as Buzzed On Movies. That's right, Matt from Buzzed On Movies. You got our review of the week for 
your 2017 five-star review of La La Land. And here, I'm going to read it to you, Brian. It isn't like a revolution or anything, but the infectious energy and unbridled passion of La La Land are hard to beat, and the heartbreak whenever it quietly and unexpectedly strips away the romantic Hollywood filter is staggering. This is a gorgeous film, capable of instilling great joy and deep sadness all at once. Emma Stone works wonders. Ryan Gosling manages to deliver more emotional wallop in three words than some actors do in a career. What were the three words, Brian? I was trying to figure out what he meant. What, what were his three words that delivered a wallop? Does he, is it when he says one more time or something at the end? Or what does he say? He's He likes, or one, two, three. Mm. He's, he starts the band up again at the end. I was wondering if it was like when he's talking to Emma Stone at the, and he says something like, yes, you are, or you're good enough or something like that. I, I don't know. You're an actress. I don't know. We'll have to reach out to Matt and see what he what those three words were that he was. Jazz is dying. <laughs> I'm white savior. Yeah, something like that. Skull antenna. <laughs> well, there you go, Matt. You're our review of the week, and thank you very much. And Brian, I look forward to talking snow day with you next week. You too, Dan. We'll give it the buzz it deserves. <laughs> <laughs>